Please turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3, verse 13. You can find that on the Bibles we've provided on page 1012. This morning we'll be studying James 3, 13 through 18. Listen to God's word from James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. This is God's word. In college, I had a a teacher who came to class one day very angry. It was early in the semester, and just after we had taken the first exam in the class, and up to this point, the teacher had been really outgoing and friendly. She'd made a real effort to make the class fun, and everyone was really enjoying it. But this day, she came to class a little late, and so we were all there kind of waiting and looking around, and when she arrived, she had a furious look on her face. She came in and she slammed the door. She marched angrily to the chalkboard without saying a word to anybody. And she grabbed a piece of chalk and with anger she wrote in big letters, almost breaking the chalk, tests are diagnostic, not punitive. And then she started handing back our graded exams. I was really confused by this. I assumed that maybe some of my overachieving classmates had complained about the test. I thought maybe we'd all failed the test. So I kind of had a pit in my stomach because I waited for mine to come back. It turned out that it was all a big joke on her part. Everyone had basically made an A on the test and she just wanted to scare us a little bit. I think she may have been laying the groundwork for later in the semester when things got harder. But obviously this made an impression on me. I still remember it very vividly to this day. I can picture the classroom and everything. But I think this short statement that she makes is also pretty important. Tests are not a form of punishment, even though we often fear them and worry about them and dread taking them. A good test reveals what you know. It's meant to reveal what otherwise might remain hidden. And you can think of that whether it's a test at school or a medical test. They reveal some information that's really important. They hopefully will reveal, if you're listening, they reveal what's what's there. If someone gives you a test, they aren't attacking you. They don't mean any harm by it. I want us to see today's passage from James as a kind of test. James gives us a question to start off. Who is wise and understanding among you? And then he goes on to give us some criteria that we need to answer that question. Am I wise or not? He tells us what true wisdom is, wisdom that comes down from God, and then what, what this alternate kind of wisdom is, wisdom that's demonic or earthly or unspiritual wisdom. 
According to James, everybody falls into one or of two categories. Either you have this wisdom from God, or you have this other kind of wisdom, this demonic wisdom. He says that God's wisdom produces a harvest of righteousness, but this worldly wisdom produces disorder and every vile practice. It's important that we see then that wisdom for James isn't a kind of just mental cleverness or skill. The wisdom from above that he's talking about is a gift. It's a gift from God, and it's really closely tied to being saved by God. It's the wisdom to love what God loves and then to live accordingly. And so this test that James gives us in this passage is an opportunity to examine whether we are truly trusting in Jesus or not. It's, a, it's an opportunity to diagnose ourselves according to God's word. And so as we take this test, we'll have to ask, is my life full of humility and good works or jealousy and selfish ambition? Are we trying to produce righteousness, the righteousness of God through our own anger or through peacemaking? Are we deceiving ourselves and others when it comes to our spiritual state? A test like this may be uncomfortable for us. We might feel it is a bit of an attack. But remember, tests are diagnostic, not punitive. It's kind of God to include a test like, that in, like this one in his word because it, it helps us to see things that we might not otherwise see. This test helps to diagnose our spiritual condition in ways that we couldn't have left to ourselves. James himself calls God's word a mirror in chapter 1. A mirror that we look into to see what we're really like. And he warns us against walking away from that mirror and forgetting what we look like. A test like this that helps you truly see your spiritual life may be the best thing that's ever happened to you. It might show you that you need God's grace in a way that you never realized before. So this morning we're going to walk through this test together. We can call this an open book test because we take it before the open scriptures. And it's an open life test. We should lay ourselves open before it. So we're going to be looking at ourselves in light of God's word. And we're going to look at six questions from this passage. Six questions on James's exam for us. First... Are you humble? Are you humble? Second, are you proud? Third, are you holy? Fourth, do you love peace? Do you love peace? Fifth, are you teachable? And finally, are you merciful? Let's so repeat them one more time for your, your note takers. Are you humble? Are you proud? Are you holy? Do you love peace? Are you teachable? And are you merciful? We see the first question, are you humble, in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. I'm keying in on that last phrase, the meekness of wisdom. In this uh, verse, James is saying something similar to what he said in chapter 2 when he taught us that faith without works is dead, that faith reveals itself through our good works. But now he's linking good works to wisdom. 
He says that the wise person will do good works in the meekness of wisdom. There's a strange repetition in this verse when James says that a good good person's or that a person's good works are shown by his good conduct. So James isn't saying that a, a wise person has a kind of a smattering of random good works here and there, but that his overall way of life, his whole conduct, is marked by humble obedience to God. And it's from this word meekness, again, that we get the idea of humility. This person, this wise man who has God's wisdom, isn't boasting in his good works. Wisdom here is accompanied by the meekness of wisdom. It's a humble way of life. Humility, then, is the basic attitude of the Christian because humility means seeing ourselves as we really are. It means seeing ourselves the way God sees us. Christians should be humble because we recognize our sinfulness. So apart from God's grace, our way of life has not been good. If we look at our works and our conduct, it's not good apart from what God has done. So being sinful means that we have lived not to please God, but to please ourselves. When we're given that wisdom from above, then we start to see this clearly. We start to understand our sin and we start to see that it deserves punishment from God. So when we have God's wisdom, we have a right understanding of ourselves before God. Do you have that? Do you have that right understanding of your sin before God? Are you humble in the way you see your sin? The wisdom from above also makes us humble by showing us God's grace. If we've come to be saved by Christ, then we recognize that we're not saved because of anything that we've done. Nothing good and worthy in us is the reason that we can be reconciled to God. Wisdom from above shows us that God took the initiative to come and save us in the person of Jesus Christ. Wisdom from above shows us that Christ loved us and he gave himself for us. He died for our sins and he rose from the dead and conquered death for our sakes. And then God has gone even further. He hasn't just sent Christ to save. He's opened our eyes by the power of his Holy Spirit. He's shown us that we need Christ and he's given us faith to trust in Christ and to receive the gift of salvation. This is what wisdom from above shows us. This is how it makes us humble. And so do you see yourself as an object of God's grace? True faith in Christ produces humility. It always produces this humility. And notice that humility can't be reduced to simply negative thoughts or words about yourself. Now, it does involve knowing and being able to admit the worst realities about yourself, but it also means confessing that you have received undeserved gifts from God. True humility that accompanies true faith says, I am rightly the object of God's wrath because of my sin, but I have become God's beloved child because of his grace. True humility says both of those things. And James shows us that this humility that he's talking about, it's not just an inner state or an inner attitude that's unseen. James says that it marks all our works. As one commentator put it, this humility before God should then translate into humility towards others. 
So those who possess wisdom from above are humble toward each other in the way we treat each other. Listen to the way that Paul describes how a Christian should live in Colossians 3.12. He says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. So because we've been saved, because we've been raised with Christ and we're new creatures, we're to put on these things, and these are all ways of treating each other. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. So we see there, humility towards others means listening to, to each other. It means not always assuming that we are right. It means putting the needs of others before our own. Humble people admit to others that they are weak and that they need help. If we see ourselves rightly before God, then it will transform the way that we speak and act towards each other. And so, are you humble? That's the most basic question here for determining whether you have God's wisdom. Are you seeing yourself rightly before God? Are you, is it, does the, the way you see yourself before God as being a sinner saved by grace, does that change the way you treat others? Do you want others to pray for your spiritual growth? Humility wants that. Or do you hide any hint that you have sin or room to grow? And then ask, how would those closest describe you? Do they perceive your humility? Does it come out in kindness and patience? Do they know you to be somebody who puts their interests above your own? Is your whole way of life marked by humility. One way to understand whether or not we're humble is to examine our prayer life. Humility recognizes our dependence on God's grace. So you can start most basically by asking, do I pray at all? And then maybe take a step further and ask, what do I pray for? Are your prayers identical to your Amazon wish list? Or are your prayers confessions of sin and rejoicing in God's forgiveness? Are you asking God for his wisdom? Are you asking God to lead you into humble obedience? And do the needs of others make it into your prayer life? Are you prayerful is another way to say, are you humble? Before we move away from this first question, there's two things I'd like us to keep in mind as we go through all the questions of James's test. It's good to talk about these questions, you know, in your quiet time alone, but even better to include other believers who know you and love you as you ask these questions. You'll be better able to answer them if you ask them, if you answer them with the perspective of other Christians. And secondly, as we examine ourselves individually in light of these questions, we should examine our whole church. So we should ask, is our church humble? Is our church prayerful? And if these things are missing, how can we grow in these ways as a church? So that's the first question on James's test. Are you humble? The second question is, are you proud? We see this question in verses 14 through 16. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. 
Notice that James calls those who have jealousy and selfish ambition in their hearts not to boast or lie. Jealous ambition, jealous, jealousy and selfish ambition, he's saying, are, have no part in this wisdom that comes down from above. These heart attitudes represent a completely different kind of wisdom. And he gives it these three adjectives. It's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It's earthly and it has the nature of our flesh to it. It has the nature of hell to it. And yet, in, in despite the fact that he's so clear about how anti-God this wisdom is, he, he has to say to these Christians that he's writing to, if you're like that, don't boast and pretend like you have God's wisdom. So there were clearly some among the church, some among the audience of James's letter who, who wanted to say, we have God's wisdom. We're walking with God. And yet they were harboring these things in their hearts. Now we could say, well, how hypocritical of those ancient Christians. But the better response is for us to pause and think, well, if James could have said this to that group of Christians, it must be the case that we can be deceived about our walk with Christ. The pride James identifies here, he says, is deceitful. Right? They boast about what's false. Now, it may be that such people are self-deceived, so they may sincerely think that they're, they're Christians, but even if they're sincere, James is certain that their claim is not true. They don't have lives marked by humble obedience, and what they're boasting in is demonic wisdom. James gives us a couple of different ways to identify this pride. We can either look internally at the heart and examine jealousy and selfish ambitions, or we can look at the fruit that this jealousy and selfish ambition produces there in verse 16, that jealousy and selfish ambition produce disorder and every vile practice. First, let's look at this inward reality, the, the heart attitudes of jealousy and selfish ambition. We can see these two things as the one-two punch of pride. Pride's agenda is selfish ambition. So in our pride, we seek to get our own way. In our pride, we have a, a fundamental trust in the righteousness of our own cause, and we pursue it by any means necessary. Jealousy, then, is pride's outward face towards anyone who might threaten our ambition. So in our pride, we're on guard for threats. We're on guard for anyone who might push us off course. We're very sensitive to anyone who might make us look bad or who might derail our agenda. We are jealous for what's ours, what we perceive as ours, for our own turf. As we hear this description, we're tempted to think this is only something that like notorious sinners would have, right? This is like the, the supervillain, you know? We know Cruella de Vil has a selfish ambition to kill puppies and turn them into coats, right? But that's, that's the extreme case, right? But then we remember, again, this warning comes in the Bible to a group of Christians. Apparently, this kind of pride can dress itself up in respectable clothes, and so we need to ask, is this jealousy and selfish ambition active in my heart? Where am I unwilling to question my own cause? What kinds of things make me angry? What kinds of things make me defensive and want to fight? 
What am I trying to jealously guard? When am I tempted to try extra hard to make sure I get my way? You know, this can show up in big ways, like maybe, you know, at work, you're tempted to do something underhanded to another colleague to make sure their idea doesn't win and your plan goes ahead. Or maybe it's just in kind of the small everyday ways of life when you're going to fight tooth and nail to make sure you get to pick the restaurant when the family goes out to eat. Are you proud? Are you jealously and selfishly working to make sure that you get your way? Are these things at work in your heart? Now let's look at this from the, from the outside maybe. What are, what, what look at your life and ask, what's my life full of right now? Is it for, full of disorder in every evil practice? Doug Moose says this word disorder connotes a restless, unsettled state. Now, this doesn't mean that maybe you feel a little restless, you know, you feel like things are unsettled in your life. It has to do with the idea of being double-minded that James wrote about in chapter 1, verse 8. And he also used the same word to describe the tongue when he said that the tongue is restless. So this, this is really talking about a, a spiritual unsettled state where your heart is divided, where you're trying to serve God and money. That kind of unsettled state where your heart is being pulled after things that are anti-God or, or things that are good, but you're trying to put them in the place of God. It's essentially describing a kind of idolatrous heart. And pride is full of idolatry. Really, our idolatries are just roundabout ways of serving ourselves. And so he warns us against this restlessness. Is that kind of restlessness evident in your heart? Are you seeing the fruits of those idolatries popping up in your relationships? James also says that someone who has demonic wisdom will have a life full of every vile practice. It's easy to hide evil behind a righteous facade. And that's what hypocrisy is, right? And there are lots of warnings in scripture about hypocrisy. We can make our lives look good in certain settings while in other settings being up to all kinds of evil. If we just refer to some of the examples James has given us, we will be reminded that some of his readers were involved in, in shaming their brothers and sisters in Christ because they were poor while flattering the rich. And they were doing this kind of out in the open, you know, and in the church service. You know, they were saying to the rich man, you sit in this nice place. Poor man, you sit on the floor. Right, this maybe has special relevance to our church where we bring our own chairs, you know. Hey, rich man, you can have Randy's rocking chair. Poor man, you just sit back there on the floor. We, we, that, kind of, that kind of vile practice is truly vile, but apparently these Christians found a way to, to kind of do it in the open. And so maybe they would, they've tried to kind of make that vile practice normal. You can imagine how this happens, where something becomes normal and, and those who show a sensitivity to it, you start to mock them. Well, you, you're, just, you're just immature. We can do this. It's okay. Or you maybe even come up with a religious justification for it. This is my Christian liberty to do this. Or I, I was mean like that because I was just really defending the truth. Christian, what is your life full of? Friend who are meeting with us here, what's your life full of? Have you made peace with something that's obviously evil? Is there unchecked wickedness 
or evil in your life. That's where pride leads. If you see those kinds of things in your life, it's a sign that you've got this wisdom from below. Now, if you're hearing this and the Lord is putting his finger on painful areas of your life, I hope you know that that's a good thing. As hard as James's words here are about this demonic wisdom, he doesn't say, if you're practicing the wisdom from, from below, from the demons, there's no hope for you and you might as well just stop reading now, right? James speaks clearly about this difference between wisdom from above and wisdom from below to wake us up. It's a gift to be woken up out of our slumber. So if you see pride in your heart, or if you see, if you see the fruits of pride in your life, that's a reason to repent and confess it to God. If you're coming to see your own jealousy and selfish ambition more clearly, don't turn your eyes away from it. Understand that it's a great evil and confess it to God. Because Jesus came to die for great evils. He came to pay for the sin of great sinners. So trust that by God's grace, revealed in Christ, he will forgive your sin. But as you think about this, as you think about coming to God and confessing your sin, remember James's warning in chapter one about the double-minded man who asks for wisdom. He says that person should not think that he'll receive anything from God. I think the warning here is that if, if we have some desire to confess, maybe to feel better, and yet we have no intention of relinquishing our hold on our false gods, that's a very spiritually dangerous place to be. It's spiritually dangerous to ask for forgiveness while secretly plotting how to continue doing what you're doing. Perhaps even to use outward, outward appearance of being sorry to hide your resolve to continue in sin. So if you find yourself proud, James's word is turn away from your sin. Just the same way that Jesus told us to cut off our, our hand if it causes us to sin. Turn away from it. Relinquish those old ways and trust in Christ. Those first two questions are really foundational questions. And as we turn now to question number three, are you holy? We start to get into more specifics. And I, I think that James gives us the specifics so that we can continue rooting out pride and continue pursuing this wisdom from above. So we're, we're kind of getting more granular as a way for us to, to not just be vague in our confession and not be vague in our pursuit of God. So this third question is, are you holy? And this, this is from chapter three, verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure. And this word pure is related to the word in the Bible for holy. We can think of it as being innocent of sin. So James asks us, are you holy? And if we're humble, we have to immediately all say, well, no, we're not holy. We're very aware of our sin. But humility also leads us to hate what God hates and to love what God loves, to want what God wants. The humble desire to be holy. The humble are growing in holiness. So maybe a better way to put this question is, do you want to be holy? And are you growing in purity and holiness? 
It's a strange thing that I, I think holiness has become unpopular for contemporary Christians. We tend to equate holiness with legalism. Or maybe we think that talking about being holy is sort of naive, like no one really can get there, so why even talk about that way? But James has already told us that true religion means being unstained by the world. The Apostle Peter echoes the Old Testament call to be holy because God is holy. So the call to be pure, the call to be holy is, is rooted in God himself. We should hate what is evil. You can uh, do a good exercise of just thinking about the things you've consumed in the media in the last week, whether it's sitcoms or television news, and you've been confronted with a lot of evil in those cases, right? Whether you've seen it depicted in a, a situation or you've seen it reported on. What's your attitude toward that evil? Are you growing in a godly hatred of those things? Or is there a sense in which you're indulging those things? As we grow in Christ, we should have a greater understanding of what is sinful and what is righteous. And we should be losing our taste for what is impure and unrighteous and growing in our love for what is good and true and beautiful. James says the wisdom from above is first pure. And remember, James says that those who have God's wisdom have an entire way of life marked by humble good works. So the question is, are you holy? Are you growing in holiness? Are you praying that God will grow you in holiness? It's funny, again, you don't find we aim to be a holy people in a lot of church vision statements. But holiness should be our chief ambition as a church. Whatever else we should be, we should be holy. It's a foundational attribute of God's holy, humble people. They should be holy. In our church covenant, we promise that we will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. That's what we are celebrating each week when we come to the table. We are here as we confess Christ, resolving to lead a holy life because we've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. We're here to help each other live carefully in the world. Are we holy? Are we working together as a church to grow in holiness? Are we praying for each other's holiness? If we belong to God and profess his wisdom and possess his wisdom, we will be holy. Next, James says that the wisdom from above is peaceable and gentle, and combining those two characteristics. So do you love peace? Does this describe you? As James describes the wisdom from above, you can see, again, he's describing God himself. God is the God of peace. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And God has made peace with us through the blood of Christ. Despite our rebellion against God, God has dealt gently with us. If we've been reconciled to God, then we're to seek peace with others. And we will treat other people with gentleness. So we need to ask in this vein, are we the source of unity in our church? Or are we the source of 
divisions. One chief reason we find disunity in churches is because we all proudly insist that our view of things is the right one. There are many things we recognize we have to be united on if we're going to have a church together, right? We have to have unity on the scriptures and the gospel and even on things like who we're going to baptize. So we have to have unity on certain things. But we also recognize there's a lot of things that we intentionally leave open. So we can have differing views on the end times or on tax policy, and we can still retain fellowship in the same church. Our fellowship here right now isn't based on the fact that we all share the same view of government mask mandates, or we don't share the same view about the efficacy of the coronavirus vaccines, right? We can have, we can have disagreement and disunity about those things. But where disunity comes in is when we, we take one of those things and we speak about it as if it were gospel truth. As if anyone who doesn't agree with me is, is stupid or, or not a Christian. So we, we talk in these exaggerated ways that alienate people or exclude brothers and sisters in Christ who aren't exactly where we are. You see, if we love peace, we're gonna hold those things loosely. We'll be willing to admit that we're not omniscient about all these things, that we very well may be wrong about our strongly held opinions. And so as you consider, do you love peace? You should ask, is there some non-essential area where I am creating divisions? Or maybe think about it even one step removed. If there was an area like that where I'd likely to cause divisions, how can I be careful about that? How can I kind of have an advanced warning system to detect my, my strong opinions about things that, that aren't required for our church to be a church. The wisdom from above loves peace and is gentle. Now, as we think about peace, we do have to recognize that a biblical view of peace is not the avoidance of conflict, right? The gospel, the message of peace involves conflict. God brings peace by, by this conflict with sin on the cross. He brings peace by dealing fully and righteously with our sin through Jesus Christ. I think this sometimes leads us to think that our role in peacemaking is, is just dropping truth bombs, right? We, we speak the truth and let the chips fall where they may. But that approach denies the gentleness of God. We, write, we read in Romans that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And so we should ask, am I gentle with others as I speak the truth? I heard something in a recent sermon by Mark Dever that's really stuck with me about gentleness. He said, gentleness is what humility looks like when it's talking to others. It fits with being submitted to God. Gentleness is what we need when others really are wrong and we know they're wrong. That's when we especially need to be gentle. I found that hugely convicting as I think about disciplining my kids when I know they're wrong. And I think it has so many applications to our life together as a church. When you're most certain that you're right, are you most gentle? Do you love peace? Are you gentle? Consider these first three descriptions of wisdom together. Pure, loving peace, and gentle. 
How beautiful would it be for a church to be known for its holiness and for its gentleness? Oh, that we would be a church where we are zealous for purity and for peace. Only God can make a church like that. So we should ask, do we love peace? James's next attribute is that is, are we gentle? He says that wisdom is open to reason. So the question is, are we teachable? If we have wisdom, if we have God's wisdom, we will be teachable. Does that describe you? Are you teachable? Imagine, if you will, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Combining the ability to be wrong, the ability to fall into sin, and unwillingness to be corrected by others. That's a poisonous cocktail, isn't it? And that's true of all of us. If we're, we are capable of being wrong, right? We are li- liable, we are prone to wonder, to fall into sin. That's true of all of us. There's only one wise way to deal with those two realities, that we are capable of being wrong and that we're prone to fall into sin. And that wise way is to be teachable. To be teachable when we come to God's word and have it correct us. To be teachable when we're here in the the fellowship of God's people and to listen to each other as they speak God's wisdom to us. So if we're wise, if we have God's wisdom, we'll be eager to learn from God's word. We'll be thankful for God's people who speak the truth to us. Are you teachable? The final question to ask is, are you merciful? Verse 17 ends James's description of wisdom from above like this. He says, wisdom from above is full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. We see a similar combination of mercy and impartiality in the first half of chapter 2, that passage where James talked about the the brother coming who's poor and being told to sit in a place of dishonor. James was warning there against partiality. He was calling them to be impartial, and he closed that section by talking about mercy, that if if we show no mercy, we'll be shown no mercy by God. So this final collection reminds us that wisdom from God is not some invisible mental state. It displays itself in our way of life and in our works. The wise person shows mercy. Are you merciful? We see that mercy is aware of and responsive to the needs of others. Mercy kind of has a radar for, hey, there's somebody in need. And it doesn't just walk on by like the two characters in the Good Samaritan, right? It steps over and provides, the need, provides for the need. Mercy is concerned with those who can't help themselves, whether perhaps they're the, the children among us or others who have needs for some reason. Mercy doesn't want them to be left behind. It's concerned with impartiality, with, with everybody being included. And we see in this way, mercy is the, the practical opposite of jealousy and selfish ambition. Right? Jealousy and selfish ambition, they, they see the needs of wants and others as threats to my priorities. If I give those any airtime, my way might get derailed. But mercy sees the needs and wants of others as an opportunity to serve them, even as an obligation to serve them. If we're, if we're brothers and sisters in the same church and we see a need, we, it's up to us to meet that need. We don't leave it for somebody else. If you want to know what this mercy looks like, look how Christ responded 
to our spiritual crisis. Out of his mercy, he gave his life to save us. Out of his mercy, Christ is impartial. He gives freely to everyone who believes. If you have the wisdom from above, you'll be merciful and full of good fruit. Does that describe you? Are you merciful? The final verse of this passage tells us that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It's another funny expression in that we don't think about planting the harvest. You're supposed to harvest the harvest. But in this case, James says that the harvest is planted or the fruit is planted. James' point here is that, that the fruit of the wise life is righteousness. The fruit of the peaceable life is righteousness. It's sown in peace and reaped in peace. James told us in chapter 1 that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so if we ever believe that we're pursuing God's righteousness through our anger and selfish ambition, James is putting the light of that right here. He wants to stop us in our tracks. And he's telling us, if, if you're pursuing God's righteousness in that way, you're deceived. You're operating from demonic wisdom. And then he tells us here how that righteousness is produced. It's sown in peace by those who make peace. It's sown by those who have the wisdom from above, who those who love peace, those who are the beneficiaries of God's peacemaking work in the gospel. And so the question is, are you wise? When you look at your life, what kind of fruit do you see? Do you see humility or pride? Do you see peace or divisions everywhere? Do you see evil works? Or do you see the fruit of righteousness? When we look at our church, what do we see? Remember, tests are diagnostic, not punitive. But the funny thing about a test like this one that we've taken this morning is that Whatever the exact diagnosis is, the prescription is pretty much the same. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. So whatever pride and worldly wisdom James has revealed in your heart this morning, confess it to God and seek the peace with God that comes through Jesus Christ. Seek the holy God, the peacemaking God, the gentle God. Seek the God who gives generously without reproach. Amen. Our Father, we pray that you would indeed give us your wisdom. Father, I pray that if we are in any way tempted to ask for this with divided hearts, that you would reveal that. Expose the ways that we are clinging to false gods. Help us to see that there is no fruit in that path. We thank you for your word, that it tells us the truth. We pray for hearts to submit to it. In Christ's name, amen.